Welcome to Docs in Orbit, a podcast for international, independent, creative nonfiction filmmakers. This is Christina Zacriades. Hello, and welcome back. For those who might be joining us for the first time, thank you for tuning in. Docs in Orbit is a podcast with a focus on contemporary nonfiction cinema, and we follow the film festival circuit closely, exploring modern approaches to filmmaking. There are several rotating contributors and co-curators from around the world, all of whom are filmmakers, and this podcast is a space for all of us to connect with works that move us and allow for the opportunity to delve into the filmmaking process of others. For this episode, I had the pleasure of collaborating with Eka Tsotsoria in Tbilisi on a film that we discovered at IDFA this past November. The film is Paradise by Alexander Abaturov, and it's set in a small village of Shologon in northern Siberia as it experiences an elevated number of severe and extreme wildfires. It's located in an area designated by the Russian state as a control zone, which is confusing terminology that essentially means that even though it is a Russian state territory, the state has a policy of letting remote forest fires burn if the cost to put the fire out is greater than the profit that could be generated from the land. It's a shocking policy set off an alarm in us with powerful images of raging wildfire as this uncontrollable, destructive, energetic force. But it's also a film that reignited our faith in community organizing through this beautiful, candid, and careful gaze on the local inhabitants and their spirit of unity and community action as they come together to do everything they can to fight these fires with very little state resources. Paradise had its world premiere at IDFA in the International Competition section, where it won the Best Cinematography Award, and is making rounds in several film festivals, so keep an eye out for it. Facilitating this conversation is Eka Tsotsoria, a filmmaker from Tbilisi, Georgia, with a background in art history, creative documentary, and film criticism. So, without further ado, here's the conversation. It was a very, very big pleasure watching your film. Congratulations on it. Thank you very much. And I'm, I'm glad to have this opportunity to be discussing it with you. Watching the film was a big uh, bundle of different emotions from like deep sadness for witnessing the burning forest, but also this heartwarming uh, joy to experience the beauty of this communal action. So yeah, really, thank you for offering this strong uh, sensorial experience. And apart from all this, what really strikes me is that it was also teaching so much about certain notions that I didn't know existed. And I think I wanted to start uh, with this. The film also opens with the notion of control zone which basically is the, the area, the territory in the, inside the state where the state disengages from the obligation to put out the forest fires, right? Uh, it was the shocking thing for me to learn it exists. And I was wondering if you know, if you're familiar with 
similar international practices of dealing with forest fires in this way, or is it specifically a Russian, let's say, solution? Yeah, I think it's, I guess maybe in Canada, in the remote zones, something like this exists, but I can say it for sure if it's truly Russian invention or it's existing in some kind of other big countries with huge territories and remote sites. But for me, it's a very good example of today's uh, Russian government approach to its population and to its territory, this colonial and hypocritic approach. You know, it's called control zone, and actually it's completely out of control, you know. So it's upside down, and it's like kind of George Orwell 1984 language, you know. War is peace, and that's exactly what's happened with this notion. But uh, in 2021 was a very harsh year for the wildfires. So, uh, yeah, I think it's 90% of all the wildfires started in the control zone. And after that, it went uh, to the villages because it, as the summer with the global crisis, climate crisis uh, became longer and the season is much longer. So it's... Uh, the dozens and dozens of kilometers, the wildfires, they, you know, they move and destroy everything on their path, you know. Exactly, because, because um, the, even the film says this in 2021, as you said, it was a devastating year, especially 19 million hectares of the forest burned. And then you said there are quite a few communities around the so-called controlled zones. I was wondering, how did you focus your, your attention specifically on Shologon? Like, what led you to that uh, that community? Yeah, it's um, <laughs> now when it's uh, the film is done, it seems for me so natural and so evident that uh, it's done. It's in this village. As the work it started uh, four years before, I guess I could say in. Uh, 2018 I wrote the first draft of this project and it was completely different and um, in 1920 there was uh, the scouting session and rewriting session after the scouting session when I went to Siberia and Yakutia to watch how 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 it works um, and uh, so during these uh, scouting sessions, I was trying to understand how it works with uh, wildfires in, in Russia. So I've developed kind of method and it uh, was like kind of, okay, there is a, a zone which is, uh, looks like there is, will be a drought, dry summer with no rain this year. So we know that in some point there will be the wildfires will start. So the wildfires will start and after that we're going to zoom in and zoom in and zoom in and to find the village that could be a good point to, to tell this story. And uh, of course it, it has to be a remote village, a small one that people, the government uh, don't uh, give a damn about, you know, they abandoned, they have to... Uh, organize and uh, themselves and um, put this collective action which was the the main heart of the film for me and uh, when the summer came um, it was the most stressful one because the, the team was up we got the gear and we came to yakutia and we started 
we got a car with a driver and we was looking for this village i guess we made some kilometers kind of 1000 kilometers trying to find it it took several days because the roads are not good also and uh, at some point uh, the local journalist when i was with a contact they told me about shologon and uh, finally we've got three places we, we could go and we got gathered some information and it, actually shalagon was the smallest one <laughs> it, uh, it was a dead-end village so there is no passers-by uh, just the people who came there for the reason or who lived there and uh, the journalist told me that uh, it's a pretty contrasted in its population there is lots of elderly people and uh, lots of youngsters with, with colored hairs so I liked this uh, uh, this point also, you know, to to find the the point of encounter between this archaic and ancient world and the modern and futuristic one. That's what I tried to do with the film. Actually, it's not to to make something exotic with the Yakutian local people, but to share this experience of these people. They didn't want it to to found themselves surrounded by the enormous wildfires, but they did, and uh, it's it, it was mostly it's mostly the film that shares this experience, and their activities, you know, their auto defense uh, in face of this dragon. For for me also, and for many people, I imagine like this the sense of community is really in the heart of uh, in the heart of the film, and how. Mm, because of their abandonment, as you said, also, also from the side of the state, they find this know-how and the capacity to put themselves together against such a strong uh, threat from the outside. Um, and to find that community in this area, in this specific village or in this area of Yakutia is something that you anticipated, being yourself also from Siberia or or you discovered it in the process of filming, and that's what you, what you learned about the community. This like joyful moment of also women joining the fight, and everybody puts their physical effort in face of this really raging dragon. They also self-organized and so almost like in this anarchist way, right? Like they're all um, take the personal individual responsibility to show up and do something for the village and. I was wondering if something that was a discovery for you or something that you thought, okay, there in these communities, I might find that spirit. Mm. And the, the, the sequence with the, with the women, it's like, it's, it's really, it's really my favorite. They are so strong, so beautiful, so brave and so funny. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I like yeah, them yeah. much. And it's lots so much this, force of life and love in, in them. It's, it's incredible. And sense of humor, always laughing, always laughing. In it was all disaster. Uh, also. Yeah. Yeah. Like there is a, yeah, they, they like, like laughing in the face of the dragon and, uh, I was scared <laughs> and them, they were laughing. So it was, yeah, it was great. And, um, the, 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 I was, I discovered this force and this kind of organization and collectivism effort when I came to Yakutia and it was the reason that I decided uh, okay it will be it will be there the film 
because mm. yeah in 19 i was more in the west part of siberia and irkutsk or krasnoyarsk and um, i could say i i did not saw um this kind of you know engagement the people were all, always like oh it's a disaster it's a disaster government doing nothing and uh, and they said, do you participate? Do you trying to do something with it? No, what, what I could do? Uh, no, 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 no. And uh, when I came to Yakutia, and for, for, it was the first time in my life. It was in 20 and it was a Svatai um, village. It, it was a remote village much up in north. And I saw all these elements, uh, women and uh, youngsters and men participating together. Each each man brings something that he can bring for to participate, you know, the strengths. So they, they give what they've got, you know. And I think it's something very Yakutian, you know, because they're very linked... Uh, they got this bond with their lands uh, that they love a lot and mm. uh, and because there is lots of yeah it's a small communities living in the hostile environment so there is something forged since the generation i guess mm. and um, again there is something very futuristic in it because they're so much in uh, social media in instagram whatsapp groups uh and the, the every village you've got uh, the the whatsapp group when everybody can express uh, their sorts of feelings make proposition or criticize the the local authority so it's like direct democracy with the modern mm-hmm. technologies you know so and um yeah, there is there is something very anarchic and democratic in in this pretty traditional societies, you know. So mm. it's 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 very beautiful. Yeah, that was also totally my feeling. That I mean, at the same time, I was watching and witnessing the complete absence of the state. Uh, that was um, that was bringing up a lot of anger and you know the questions and disappointment uh, but at the same time I, I found it very curious how this created this like uh, almost like an experimental exper- space for this experiment what happens uh, when the community is tight and there is no power outside responsible on their survival physical survival and I felt that these people really had a lot to teach us for sure mm. So speaking of like this absence of the Russian state and the way it's only way I remember now it registered in my memory that it appears is like the Moscow is on the phone call. The locals answer the, the phone call from the authorities and that this authority, this is like the fear inducing authority. I was wondering if you could tell us more about the power dynamics between the center and the periphery, periphery mm-hmm. in Russia and how in this case, Saha Republic, which is like the, the biggest one, right, in Russia, like um, Russian Federation? In terms of territory, yeah. yeah. How is this power practiced in general or in your in your experience filming there? Mm. 
Um, yeah, it's it's a very complex question, and of course uh, mm. there is something I think I uh, would like to express uh, politically, of course, and the local people. I think if you ask them, they would say, no, 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 we can't say that nobody helped us. They they helped us as they could. Uh, they sent us some water packs, and it was a huge help. You, it's not right to say that. Uh, that we was abandoned by the government, but it's uh, I'm afraid it's uh, it's Soviet Union heritage. <laughs> then when you you don't have to criticize the the government, you know it's opposite that in Europe and uh, mm. in United States or Canada, in Sahar Republic in Yakutia, it's a pretty unique situation because there are lots of you know this this consciousness of uh, that they colonized territory by the Moscow and uh, they just taken diamonds and all the other resources and bring it to Moscow. There is lots of separatism feelings, but it's which is not really expressed because of, you know, the political situation in Russia. So there is not not much uh, opposition left. I, I don't know. It's 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 a very tricky tricky question. But for me, of course, it's a colonized territory and exploited territory, and uh, it's a thievery and the crime, of course. Actually, I don't know if this might have escaped uh, to many viewers who don't speak Russian. But still, it's has to be said that the entire language of the film is like the local language, the Turkic language. Also, the Russian only appears in the film when this power dynamic appears. So, like, the, the Russian appears only with the phone calls, mm. right, if I'm not uh, mm. mistaken. Yeah. For me, it was, uh, you know, a mind-blowing realization, once again, that on what scale of a country we're talking about when we, yeah. uh, and what, how many different uh, cultures and communities there are that we know as Russia, obviously. Yeah, actually, I insisted that the film have to be in Saha language, their local language that they are used in their, their everyday life. I think it was a good decision because it's natural for them and um, it created some intimacy also, you know, when when we, we could discuss each other in Russian, but when we was shooting, when we was filming, they talked uh, in Saha, so they lived their lives because they knew that I don't understand the word they're saying. But, uh, and so I, I, I actually, I, after that, everything was translated and sub- subtitles was made. So it was, I started uh, the editing. I found them, the, them calling it the dragon. Uh, ah, I see. And, wow. It's so... <laughs> Even before there was something, they always talk about the wildfire and the fire as some living creature, living being, you know, because in, in the evening the, the fire go into sleep, uh, this, in the, the fire wakes up, uh, uh, the fire fled when they're trying to capture it. So it's, yeah, it's some kind of... Um, perception of the world when everything is alive i think it's of course it's it have to be linked with this um, animist culture yeah. when everything is got the, its spirit 
I was wondering also about your personal background. Uh, I, I just know that you're born um, in the big city of Siberia yourself from there. So I was wondering what was your personal experience of, you know, bonding with uh, the local nature or getting to know to these animistic cultures, if it had any relation with the film or your curiosities with fire or your curiosity with the forests, etc. Yeah, I'm from Novosibirsk. It's kind of, we called it capital of Siberia and we are very proud of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't mean much, but um, but still, yeah, it's a big city. More than a million people live in there, so it's it's really huge. But it's still it's surrounded by the nature you know you going out and uh, it's fin- it's you know it ends uh, abruptly and it's taiga <laughs> around it so yeah. <laughs> we're still in siberia and um, i guess for lots of people uh, outdoor is one of the main activities uh, when you live in grow up there there is a, there are altai mountains in the south it's uh, the region which I like a lot and uh, I miss much uh, since I don't go no more in Russia last year, since last year. But it's Altai, it's kind of uh, the cradle of this uh, Turk uh, culture and mm. animism culture. Mm. They say that shamans uh, came from there. So... I had several experiences, you know, the opportunities to to go there to share the the, the you know this taiga and forest experience, and uh, I like to be in the forest to feel myself very very small, you know, a real small particle of of the universe, uh, you know, it's it's mm. I don't know I I feel myself protected in the forest, so for me it was. Um, mm. It's something I like to do, and um, the fire. My my father was a f- firefighter, so maybe, uh, yeah, maybe it's kind of from there. You know, some kind of stories he told me when I was a kid. Maybe it's marked me, uh, but I know it's it was not calculated like this. You know, okay, yeah, I would like to do a film because uh, yeah, I, I wanted to be. I I never wanted to be a firefighter, but. I remember it was the last filming session for the previous project, The Sun, and it was a fire sequence, a kind of mystical ritual for the solstice. It was the last shooting for The Sun, and um, I decided to make a film about fire, but I did not know what, what's going to be. And at one point, I don't know, I was thinking about wildfires as it's ultimate form of the fire you know the dragon mm. actually the dragon it's 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 came from yakutian people yeah i meant to ask you about this story of the sacred mountain uh, and the dragon um and the wind no, yeah, yeah, yeah. and the wind yeah sacred it's, mountain and the wind um i was yeah. wondering how did that uh, story find itself to the into the film how did you come across it is it a local story also yeah, it's it's a Saha fairy tale that mm. I found uh, making our making my researches uh, on the internet, and um, I found kind of selection of Yakutian Saha fairy tales. And when I saw this one, I don't know, I just there is something clicked in my head that it's 
uh, resonating pretty well as it's a uh, wind the represent uh, of uh, young representative of the nature the power of nature that he sees how the people uh, could not manage to live together in the peace and the unity and the wind tried to make them little signs to stop it and to take together and uh, the, the people don't understand and after that uh, uh, wind became very sad and after that he became very angry and uh, he blows very strong and became uh, the tempest uh, and uh, this danger that unites the people and the people understand that we, we need to be together to manage to survive you know so it's and yeah there is something about collective that uh, forged by the the danger and uh, the nature that sending the signs to the people and uh, yeah it, there is something um, you know which resonating pretty well with the climate crisis and uh, uh, i came to the village and i said ah do you know this uh, this fairy tale and uh, and they said no we don't know ah come on i will tell you the fairy tale so our you know we've met each other in with the shologon people me telling them the local fairy tale it's actually it's one of the women we see uh, in the fire you know in the fire team she's a librarian in the village mm -hmm. and uh, she's doing this uh, cultural activities with the theater and costumes performances and with, so she made this uh, I, I bring it to them and and they made uh, the theater piece with that I was so it's yeah it's it was something that integrated into the reality yeah you know for for me the film a film like doesn't come across at all as like this heroic story of a man fighting against the force of nature but it's really full of this humbleness instead that the men as like this small creatures um have in the face of something so much bigger and the only thing they can do is like to try to contain it right like to calm it down until the rain comes and again like the solution somehow comes with um, in collaboration with nature like the rain is some is the is the power that must help them and um, mm. i found it really beautiful what you what you just said was making me think of the ending scene also and like to finish the film with the fishing scene because the result of their fishing is shared by by everyone uh yeah. that who participates and then some is shared with the with the birds with the ravens right that uh, yeah. are also yeah. there this this you know acknowledgement of being there to share the land and the goods of this land with all the other living creatures is again beautiful and a lot of lessons to take away from that and the fishing no i just i just remember the the moment when the, it was maria the the chief of the the women's squad you know uh, it, uh, she she's great she she helped so much she, she was so fond of the, the ideas doing the film she was so glad to participate and she always got some creative ideas which was really great and the way she she spoke about uh, this collective fishing, Munha, traditional collective fishing. It was so 
immersive, you know, <laughs> they was telling about, yes, and everybody have to go in the same time in unity and, uh, and screaming uh, and everybody is together. And uh, yeah, we decided it's rather be opening sequence or ending sequence. So it's now it's ending sequence. And actually, uh, she showed me the the paintings uh, which made was made by the local painter of this uh, uh, Munha collective fission. And I, I was saying to Paul the the DOP, I said I want this frame to be the final frame of the film. And I said no, but look, uh, it's perspective. We need to be like uh, six meters. Uh, height to make this perspective say okay we need to do something to say it's in the middle of nowhere we cannot bring uh, you know no gear to 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 put the camera so high and uh, and I, I remember we were searching and searching and making kind of meetings with the local people and finally Anna Ivanovna who was uh, working who was making the theater stuff you know mm -hmm. she, she said yeah but we can bring the how we call it in english you know the, the scaffolding the we, yeah yeah, yeah to, to 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 for the buildings you know the construction mm -hmm. works uh, and the guys they bring it uh, you know to the lake and they mounted it and we were like i don't know six meters high it was like uh, a little bit on top of also. the frozen lake <laughs> oh yeah, it was one, <laughs> I guess it was one of the most dangerous part of the shooting. It wasn't the fire. It was the final point of the adventure. <laughs> Thank you so much, Alexander, for sharing your adventure of making this film with us. <laughs> and thank you again for the invitation. It was a nice, um, nice talk to you. It was a really big pleasure. Thank you. We stay in touch. Thanks for listening. For links referenced in this episode and updates on upcoming screenings, please visit docsinorbit.com. This podcast was produced by Christina Zacriades in Brooklyn, Eka Tsotsori in Tbilisi, and Eileen Gokman in Zurich, with music by Naeem Makhboub in Stockholm. And if you like what you just heard, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review so that more film lovers can find us.